Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Pope, the Poor, and Economics. So, Richard, this week we continue the conversation we started last week about Pope Francis's recent trip to the United States and I wanted to devote an entire episode to his understanding of economics, which I know is, is greatly at variance with yours, to put it mildly. Uh, I want to I start here to put this in the correct light. You and I are, are both well aware of the critique of capitalism as essentially heartless, as leaving the, the poor and the downtrodden to their own devices. But when you wrote about this for Defining Ideas, you mentioned the concept of imperfect obligations as an important filter through which you have to kind of understand this issue. Can you give our audience the sort of basic explainer on what that concept means? Sure. It's an extremely elusive concept. It was widely dominant in much of the 19th century. And what it does is it allows you to draw a distinction between uh, the social Darwinism, the survival of the fittest, which Pope Francis seems to refer to, and traditional laissez-faire. A social Darwinist, when they start talking about the survival of fittest, they don't mean that one group of roving individuals is allowed to kill off another. But what they do mean is that there's a systematic prohibition that the state ought to impose against the provision of charity to those who are less fortunate than themselves. And this basically means that the way in which the human race will improve itself in the long run is it will show no self-indulgence to the uh, poor people um, in a particular society. They will then start to die out and there will be a sort of a hardier breed. Social Darwinism is to some extent reasonably closely related to the eugenics movement on um, which existed about the same time. There's a famous 1927 opinion by Justice Holmes in a case called Buckby LaBelle in which he announces about a grotesque case of forced sterilization. Three generations of imbeciles is enough. I mean, and, you know, Holmes himself is something of a social Darwinist. And, you know, I agree with the Pope and anybody else who believes that somehow or other when you see suffering on your doorstep, the appropriate response is to shut the door and to let them die. Um, what happens, of course, is that laissez-faire capitalism has another side and that side says, look, um, we start running a system of wealth creation through market transactions, preferably under competitive conditions, understanding that the state has to do enforcement of contracts and the supply of infrastructure at the very least and the prohibit, prohibit, prohibition against violence. But this does not necessarily do well as a total social situation because there will be many people who have no resources and cannot participate in market transactions. And what the theory of imperfect obligation says, folks, you're out there, you're responsible human beings, you look around and you see suffering, and what you ought to do as a matter of conscience, as a matter of social organization, as a matter of religious duty, is to find whomever it is that you would like to help in whatever way you would like to help them, and that what you then do is devote some portion of your wealth to their welfare. One way to think about this is a kind of a tithing system uh, consistent with laissez-faire. And then the question is whether or not these were just idle words that people used in order to shield their wealth from public scrutiny or whether or not they lived them out. And the 19th century, particularly in its last half, was an outpouring of all sorts of charitable institutions that essentially reflected that view. And one of the ways in which you try to get this across is to just ask people, who are they? 
when you start looking at a name. And so we know, for example, the Cancer Institute is called Sloan Kettering. I would bet that there's probably not one American in 50 who knows who Sloan or Kettering were, right? Well, they're not scientists. Sloan was Alfred Sloan who organized GM into a modern country, a company around 1920, 1930. Charlie Kettering was the fellow who was in charge of the battery manufacturer that was associated with it. And when their days on earth were over and even before, what they did is they just gave a huge chunk of money to medical resources. You know, there wasn't any return quid pro quo, but they understood what was about. And in fact, between the scientific advances that an organization like that makes and the care that it gives to the poor, the sick, and the indigent, they've done a huge amount of good. You know, you take other kinds of people. Bill Gates, I don't think I agree with his politics. Maybe he should be Blaine Bridge, maybe not. But, you know, when a guy gives away $20 billion to various kinds of organization and actually puts together a group of individuals who know how to give the money, I'm not going to sit there and say, tut, tut, tut. The problem with you, Mr. Gates, is you've given to charities that I would reject and you would reject charities to which I would give. I mean, I just, just crazy. And, you know, you're extremely grateful that people do this and you start thinking about all the institutions that I've been associated with in one way or another. The Hoover Institution is not quite an imperfect obligation institution, um, but it was set up by Hoover out of his own money during his own life because he wanted to figure out how you investigate and control problems of war, revolution, and peace. And remember, Hoover was a savior on what he did in Western Europe after the war uh, to save the lives of many people in starved areas was simply extraordinary. And, you know, there's nothing whatsoever about a system of capitalism uh, that blocks this. And there's a huge amount of social infrastructure and support structures that support this. And what you have to understand is that legal obligations work best when there's specific targets of abuse that they could enter into or specific promises that they can enforce. But trying to sort of have a legal obligation to do good, to be benevolent, it makes it so indefinite that it doesn't work. But that doesn't mean that individuals can't concretize that general notion in their own lives and start to do these things. And Americans have generally been pretty good on this. The Europeans, by and large, tend to be terrible. And there's the following last point that I'll make. If you do this stuff charitably, you cannot survive competition from government-supported agencies who are dealing with you. So if you want to give aid to people, you know that to some extent you may have to condition the aid on their willingness to take certain kinds of steps for their own self-improvement. Government gives the aid sound conditioned. You're going to be driven out by the competition. And so we have seen over the last 50 years that direct aid to the poor has been largely supplanted by government programs, leaving educational and religious and institutions and medical stuff as the dominant. And if you were to change the mix a little bit, it would work. And when the Pope doesn't mention any of this and calls everybody greedy or essentially says that capitalism uh, works on the principles that are antithetical to human welfare, you just sit there in utter amazement. There was some person on the Hoover site, some godforsaken commentator, who starts to say that I was talking about how important it is to be selfish and the Pope was right to remind us of our obligations to others. And somebody wrote a response saying, you know, he did write about imperfect obligations. Maybe you should take that into the mix. I don't think the Pope knows how to do that. And that's just a glaring omission from the way in which he treats this subject. So devil's advocate here for a moment. If we've got somebody listening to this podcast who's hearing what you just said and thinking, okay, this guy Epstein is – He's a libertarian. He's talking up the civil society line as far as helping the poor. We're sort of used to that from the right. For somebody like that, what would you tell them? What, as a good classical liberal, uh, what role is there for the government in poverty alleviation? 
Well, I mean, the, the more efficient the private network, the smaller the role that the government has. I mean, even if you go back to 1900, uh, where you have a government which is probably less than a tenth the size that it is today at the state and the national level, people always had hospitals, county hospitals with open wards to which people could come, and they were given kinds of support. Uh, there were government programs that gave categorical assistance to people who were blind, who had other specific kinds of disabilities, and I don't think anybody would want to sort of get bent out of shape about the way in which these things started to operate. And, you know, my basic attitude is, if you're a government organization, what you do is you'll look around, see where the private stuff is fine, and then try to fill in the gaps where it doesn't work. One of the things that I'm very uneasy about are charitable private organizations receiving government grants subject to conditions because the conditions, after all, can completely change the way in which the method and the message runs. So I know it may sound strange, but I don't think government support for education should be conditioned upon your willingness to take in all comers. It may be extremely important to certain religious and social groups that they take only Catholics, only Italians, only minority members of one sort or another. And I think that these organizations which enjoy a place in civil society society when there's no government support should not be essentially be run out of business by the government saying you got to do it all way you don't do it at all the bob jones case which says we're not going to give a tax exemption to any organization that bans interracial dating was a terrible mistake in that it's not because i'm in favor of bans on interracial dating lord knows it's the opposite but it seems to me that you cannot use the taxing power of the government to take a position in civil society that is regarded as just when taxes are not involved and then skew the balance in favor of one uh, the left understood this perfectly well when they said, you know, you can't use tax exemptions to punish communists or to deny them the right to practice law or do something of the sort. They were right about that. And now when it's a different group of individuals, they have to be right about that as well and take exactly the same kind of position. Now, if you did all of this, what would happen is you'd want the size of the government to shrink. What's the administration doing? Well, what it's doing is it's trying to go after the charitable deduction. I'm a fan of the charitable deduction because it's a way of giving matching public grants without having government control as to the particular object for which the money is spent within that broad category. And when you see the Obama administration coming forward with an effort to raise the marginal tax rate and cap the amount of the charitable deduction so there's, say, a gap between 39.5% and 28% or so, I think that's a terrible mistake. You want if people are giving them money to give them your blessing and have it all go out. And so the charitable deduction becomes, I think, the preferred method. And then filling in the gaps with decentralized stuff, often at the local level, would do just fine. And you could stop and dismantle much of this huge apparatus, which in many cases may turn out to be counterproductive. Well, let me give you a quote from Pope Francis. I think this is the one that you were hinting at a moment ago. Quote, today – this is from the recent trip. Today, everything comes under the laws of competition and the survival of the fittest. There's that phrase where the powerful feed upon the powerless. As a consequence, masses of people find themselves excluded and marginalized without work, without possibilities, without any means 
of escape. How do you I react mean, to that? Well, I mean, this is just a colossal misunderstanding of the way in which markets and competition work. I mean, the first point to understand about every market on the face of the globe is that everybody is not powerless to the extent that they can turn down offers if they don't like them. Uh, so he makes it sound as though the rich and the powerful can engage in acts of conscription in order to make sure that those people who are less fortunate than themselves bend and bow to their particular will. That is completely false. You have to be able to get them to join. And if, in fact, uh, their resources are limited, they're not going to surrender them in a deal which makes them worse off than before. The other thing that it makes it appear like is that employers are some sort of a matchless monolith who are trying to control the entire system. And what he ignores, in effect, is the fact that there is an enormous amount of competition amongst employers so that what happens is they can start to bid things up. When you talk about survival of the fittest, this is a good thing in market context because the firms that survive are the ones that are fittest to supply the best quantity of goods and services to their customers and they can only do so if they treat their employees right. So you're not talking about survival of the fittest by eating other people. You're talking about survival of the fittest by satisfying the demands that they have in every area. And so this whole statement turns out to be crazy. Then you look about the people who are excluded and marginalized without work possibilities without any means of escape, he's got the wrong culprit. You want to figure out how you stop people. No firm can do it by its pricing or its hiring policies so long as others are around. But the government's a monopolist. And if it decrees that everybody in the city of Seattle has to get $15 in wages or go without employment, there's no way short of breaking the law that you can avoid that particular campaign. So you want to create a group like this, use a set of regulations. And, you know, you go down the history of American reg labor regulations, and this is what you see. Minimum wage laws essentially don't benefit the people who are excluded. They benefit their competitors. So if you're a labor union and your workers can earn on average $18 an hour and you could raise the minimum wage law from $8 an hour to $15 an hour, you've cut out a lot of cheap labor. And, you know, lest one think that this is just a fantasy, I remind everybody to take a look again at the Davis-Bacon Act passed during the Hoover presidency. Hoover was a great thinker but not a great president on this. And the explicit justification for the prevailing wage laws was in effect to make sure that colored itinerant workers from the South did not give competition to the workers in the North. So this was straight exclusion. What it has been has been the greatest public works catastrophe in the United States. Uh, by putting a 20% premium on wages, you cut the number of people whom you could hire. You increase the cost to the public at large, including poor people who have to pay sales tax and other things to support this government. And what you do is you have, in effect, a pope who knows so little about these institutions that he defends the very state, which is the source of the particular dislocations that he's right to attack. Laissez-faire capitalism does not create marginalized workers. What it does is it gives people a chance to advance without having to be subject to state regulations, which are formally directed against employers, but are in practice directed against both employers and the people whom they wish to hire. To that point, my final question, I guess more of a thematic one, the the wonder-working power of markets, Richard, especially as concerns the poor, is is not a theory. This has been demonstrated around the world time and again and yet in a lot of places, especially elite precincts. The notion is met with something that approaches outright 
derision? Why do you suppose it is that a notion with this much empirical support is still often received as if it's purely speculative? Because what happens is, unfortunately, the general public uh, does not spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the laws of supply and demand look like and what principles of scarcity are about. You can see this, for example, in the recent debate about Carly Farina. Now, most people, myself included, do not praise the acquisition of Compaq, but she's not attacked for that rather difficult transaction. She's attacked for firing workers. Well, this is when she was CEO of Hewlett Packard. Yes, Hewlett Packard. I mean, Mike, the answer she gave is exactly right. Of course I fired workers. If I kept on 30,000 workers whom I could not support, I'm going to take the whole business down and that means another 180,000 people are going to go out. And when I pare this business down to the point where it's internally rationalized, then we can start to bring people up. So you don't want to look at just one firm, say, down 30,000, ignore the future, and ignore the fact that at the same time she has to downsize there, somebody else who's downsized a year before has got his or her house in order, can now hire some of the workers that have been laid off there. So you always want to do the aggregates. If you look at the Obama administration with all of its protective devices, all of which the Pope seems to support. What is very clear is that the level of labor market participation now is lower than it's ever been. And there are, I believe, fewer jobs in the economy today in 2015 than there were in 2007 in absolute numbers, uh, given the decline. Well, why is that? Because every time you try to hire somebody today, there's a existing prohibition, an existing tax, a potential tax. People cannot plan on these kinds of things. And so what happens is they don't let anybody off. Um, because they don't hire anybody. What you have to do is to encourage people to hire, and the only way you will do that is to first make sure that there are no barriers to entry in the form of minimum wage laws, discrimination laws, and what have, and then you have to give them the option to fire so that they're willing to take the risk at the front end, knowing they could cut their losses if things change at the back end. And what the Pope is essentially is somebody who has this incredibly static view of the way in which markets work and kind of believes that he knows enough about this stuff and that good employers will always keep their employees. You know, they tried that in Japan and this great economic miracle of 1980 turns out to be an exercise in stagnation today precisely because it does not give firms the discretion they need first to cut and then to grow. And if you don't let them cut, they won't be able to grow. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.